talking coaching, rowing, and all things sports science. It's The Bro Show with Bill Tate and Rod Siegel. G'day Rocket, how are we going today? Good mate, how are you? Not too bad, thank you, not too bad. So today we're talking about one of your favourite topics, which is the old heat training. Slushy? Oh no, heat oh. training. <laughs> Maybe you could finish with a slushy. You could. <laughs> Some people would want to jump into a slushy afterwards. <laughs> but what we're talking about today, folks, is uh, heat training or using training in the heat as a stimulus for physical performance. So a little bit different, and we might touch on this as well as compared to in the past where we've talked about heat training for acclimation for performance in hot weather. And certainly I know leading to Beijing, that was a really big thing at the VIS. We did a lot of stuff and that was where we actually built our heat um, training facility was based around getting people ready for uh, uh, racing in Beijing where it was gonna be stinking hot and very humid. Um, And I remember doing sessions in there with athletes very uncomfortably. But probably when you came over, one of the things that was emerging a little bit uh, two or three years ago was the use of heat training for a physiological stimulus. And I suppose that's a little bit more of what we're talking about today. Yeah, well, exactly as you alluded to. So there was a study that came out, I think it might have been in 2010, the first one that really caught my eye that showed that using quote-unquote heat acclimation training improved performance, not just in a hot environment, but in a cool normal environment as well and so you know since then a little bit more work has been done uh, looking into well do we we only use this when you're going somewhere hot or can this work as you know a training stimulus regardless of of what the event might be you know some people might argue that in rowing it's outdoors and it's near water the heat may not even have a really a large if if any negative impact on performance Um, you know you can argue that either way but certainly we're now looking at it thinking that regardless of that you can get a performance benefit from using it as a stimulus you know regardless if it's hot or not so probably first of all what are we talking about in terms of the actual practicalities of what that is in terms of training what what do you do in the heat tent to train so at the moment we're, there's lots of different ways you can do it and, and it depends on a whole number of factors Generally, the way we found it works the best is we've stuck more to, I guess, lower intensity training in there. Um, and so it really, sort of a stock standard session that we do might just be 60 minutes at you know, relatively low intensity on the watt bike. Yep. Um, you know, what we might call T2. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, it becomes more complicated when obviously, you know, really hot environment, your heart rate skyrockets. Um, your power plummets and you know ultimately you're not really in in any <laughs> of the training zones that we set because power is far lower yeah heart rate's higher and yeah and, it becomes you know. a bit irrelevant doesn't it the, yeah <clears throat> exactly yeah so generally speaking we're talking about an hour a couple of times a week um and we might talk the specifics around you know loading up and then keeping in touch with it in a moment but it, it, it's a small session it's a short session infrequently in a week um for a block of time, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and I think, as you just said, that the way that it, most of the research suggests that it needs to be quite a good dose in you know, close proximity mm. to one another. So if you were to do one a week for six weeks, it you know, probably won't have much of an impact, I think. It, yep. the, the most successful heat um, acclimation 
protocols have come when you do you know, 14 days in a row, for example. So, um, you know, and they've shown that taking days off in between can then you know, limit its effectiveness. So I think, yeah, you do need to, as best you can, if you want to get the most out of it without it, you know, just interrupting training for no real purpose is, is to get them, you know, a bit of a dose of it um, altogether if you can. Yeah, sure. And we might talk about that once we've gone through the theory as to, <clears throat> a, you know, the practical application of how you can use it. So theoretically, what is it doing? Like, why is it helping my physiology improve? So probably, there, I mean, there's a number of different um, physiological signals and so on that go on with heat training uh, and you know some of them we're not even certain how much of a role they play but the thing that comes up time and time again is that you get a big change in what's called your plasma volume so your plasma volume is essentially the blood uh, the water compartment of your blood so essentially you're getting a blood volume expansion um, and so the reason why initially we thought that was important was because you then go and compete in a hot environment, you've got more water in your blood, that means you can sweat more, you can sweat earlier, which means you can keep your core body temperature lower for longer, mm -hmm. um, and that allows you to perform better. You know, you can, you can go faster because you're not getting as hot as quickly. Um, but it, it hasn't been that well um, investigated, but there's a bit of a theory that, you know, almost like with anything, you, you dilute your blood with water, essentially. Um, the concentration goes out of whack from what the body is used to, and it thinks, oh, you know, we've got less red blood cells here in concentration than we normally do, so I need to compensate that by creating more red blood cells. And so potentially, um, you know, there's a bit of a theory out there that then you do get an increase in your, um, in your red blood cells, which allows you to carry more oxygen to the muscles, which means you go faster, essentially. So that's, I guess, sort of one of the main reasons why we see an improvement in performance. And one of the other ones you often talk about is uh, sweat efficiency as well. Do you want to just explain that as well? Yeah, well, so essentially what, what happens when you get this big increase in plasma volume is you almost, you get a bit of a, an earlier onset, it's like an earlier threshold to, to begin sweating. And so it's funny, you know, oftentimes you, you hear athletes say, oh, you know, I'm not that fit, I do, I sweat a lot, you'll say I sweat a lot. And, well, mm. actually, <laughs> the more you sweat, generally it's a sign that you, that you are even fitter rather than less fit. So um, as you were giving me grief yesterday, <laughs> I got off the hot bike and wasn't sweaty at all. So and didn't need that's shower apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, I know I'm not fit at the moment. Anyway, um, yeah, so you, you'll commence sweating earlier and, and you'll sweat more and, and therefore you'll be able to keep your body cooler um, you know, from an earlier point. Um, and, and we know the effects of elevated core temperatures on performance. The, you know, the hotter you get, you know, oftentimes it, it, mm. it can result in le you know, lower performance, especially in, in endurance events. And a shout out to David Crochet, who usually creates a lake underneath him, Largo de Crochet, when he's yes. in there. <laughs> but a, a little bit of a side note on the practical implications of it, they will sweat when they go into a heat tent. It's phenomenal particularly from our experience, the heavyweight men, it's ridiculous how much sweat will end up on the floor. And in fact, we had to buy a wet vacuum to cope with the volumes of sweat. We're talking litres and litres and litres of, mm. you know, a couple of, two or three centimetres of, of sweat on the bottom of the floor of the heat tent when they train in there. Yeah. So it's quite ridiculous. Well, I mean, one of, one of the guys in particular who, who actually seemed to be... 
just like anything, some people adapt better than others to, to service. This is we're talking about the double adapter. Here. <laughs> I don't know if we should name him. Come on, he'd be stoked if he got named. Oh, so we got um, Josh Booth, one of our, um, you know, one of the members of the men's four. Nicknamed, nicknamed himself the the adapter. I call him the cyborg because I think he's not quite human. But no one does. Yeah. Uh, he his sweat rate was in excess of four liters per hour. Wow. That's which is ridiculous. a lot. Which yeah. is a lot. So, so um, you have to just drink four liters of water to replace that if you're Josh Booth. Yeah, that's, that's I mean that's phenomenal. A lot. Two, yeah. yeah, two, you know, two big two liters bottles of, of water, sort of thing. So it, yeah. it's a lot in a short amount of time. And and to say that wasn't what it was at the beginning, that was what it was at the end of the intervention. So yeah. earlier on, it was far lower than that. So, um, but he he was one of the guys that made one of the biggest changes in sweat rate. Yeah. And certainly, he he said to me, you know, I think this is definitely working for me. When are we doing it next? Yeah, basically. Yeah. He was very keen on it, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And really, interestingly, I remember at that point in time, all of the watt bike sessions were in the heat tent. So they weren't doing any watt bike sessions outside of the heat tent. So he didn't, he hadn't sort of calibrated where he was at. And then when we went away from the stimulus and he was doing some out, outside, he came up to me and he said, Oh, right, I think the watt bikes aren't working. They need to be recalibrated. I said, Why is that? He said, Well, I'm sitting at 380 watts at like 100. 30 beats per minute. Yeah. And I said, you know, unfortunately, that sounds about right. <laughs> so he, he made some massive gains out of it. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting, the the um, psychological side of it as mm. well. Um, and I think I think that, you know, there's there's probably a little bit of the placebo side to, to some of it as well. You know, it, it just challenges you so much in that context that when you get into the normal environment, you just feel so much better. So oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if that's exactly placebo, but there is that element of it's just making the everyday feel a lot less resistant. So it's it's I guess it's like a resistance training in some, in one sense. Mm. Yeah, um, oh, definitely. I mean, you can never discount just that psychological effect you, you get of doing hard training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sweating a lot. Um, how does it work in terms of we've got the theory in terms of what it might do, um, you know, to your physiology and to your efficiency, I suppose, which is a little bit of the sweat stuff. How does it work in terms of um, practically if you were going to run it, what would it basically look like? Um, so, how do you mean in terms of bringing it into yeah, a Yeah, if, if, I, if I rolled up and said, look, I, I want to do this now, Rodney, um, what, what, what's some ways that we can apply it to a training program? Right. So, I think the way that we ended up seeing that it worked the best was, as we sort of said before, doing a block in maybe the span of one week where you might try and squeeze five sessions in. And you try to progress it. You may not go straight away in it. 60 minutes the first one might be 40 minutes and then 50 and then sort of build it up and you know certainly there there have been athletes that might do even 90 minutes at certain points in time but this is kind of i guess where from a sports scientist point of view you need to you know it's cool to come and go in there and go right we're going to do heat training and you just take over the the training program for the week and you throw in all the sessions that you want and mm. then you look at it later and go oh well, that's going to impact on all the rowing stuff so you need to be clever about where the sessions fit in the day, on which days they go, yep. um, and how long they'll go for, and what intensity, um, you know, so that it doesn't disrupt the entire flow of, of the training work. So what we ended up doing was getting it 
uh, on sort of five days out, out of out of the week, um, mm. and and oftentimes we have a second a second sort of endurance session of the day yeah. that's not the, the main session, and we would try to slot it in in that session there. And I think that we had to pre- prepare, or we had to accept that that week, that first week particularly, where we were doing five in that first week or first two weeks, that there was an element of it was going to compromise some of the other things a little bit. And we just had to accept that. So exactly. there's an element of putting that at the most appropriate times in your training cycle where you might be okay to have a few less quality rows or, or something like that in that block. Yeah, exactly right. And you do, anybody who's tried it or who's going to try it, you know, you do one session in there and you feel a bit rubbish. Yeah. So you adapt very quickly, but um, you know, almost everyone gets out of the very first one feeling horrible. And so doing five of those in one week, it does play a big, big toll uh, on the body. You're going to have to allow for that in your other training, aren't you? You're going to have to be be prepared to back off a little bit, be prepared to accept a little, potentially with some athletes, because people are going to be affected quite differently. Some are going to walk out of it feeling quite okay after the first couple. Some are going to walk out of it thinking that was horrendous. And I don't think I can cope doing that regularly. Um, but it does, they do adapt quite quickly, don't they? Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I mean, exactly as you said, I've, I've seen athletes who get through it unbelievably well and others doing the exact same thing, just it really knocks them around quite a bit. And if mm. you don't, you're not clever about it. Um, you know, a situation that actually I've done with an athlete before, not even heat training, we were doing saunas post-training mm. and they did that for six days in a row and the next week, so I mean, all they did was they trained normally and then sat in a sauna, just sitting there for 30 minutes after the last training session of the day. And the next week, they were rubbish. Yeah. Absolutely rubbish. So um, even something as small as that can really knock you about. Um, so yeah, you, you do need to be wary of uh, what you need to modify throughout the rest of that week. So you have your big week, or big couple of weeks, where you do a bit of a load up, and then, and then how does it work from there? So from there... Then we kind of try, just try to do about one or two sessions per week just to keep and maintain that stimulus. Um, and, you know, again, you try and find the most appropriate days, you know, day or days for those to go in. So, um, you know, one thing that we did last year as an example was ordinarily we'd have a big long bike ride on a Tuesday morning. That would almost be our, non, our non-rowing day where it was a bit of a download day and like two or three hour bike ride and then gym in the afternoon. Mm. And so we, we supplemented it in on that day as an example. So, um, yeah, just keep that stimulus going for a few weeks. And then, you know, if you're using it for a performance benefit, you then might come back for another little mini reload before, you know, if you've got an event or whatever it might be. And I suppose like anything, and I think through the, the um, this exercise of doing these podcasts, a little bit of what I'll probably talk about a bit is, the concept of diminished returns, like if you keep just doing something for a long, long time, you're progressively just getting diminished returns. So we, we tend to do it in a block and then go away and focus on something else and then try and come back to it and almost try and cheat diminished returns by just moving away from something when we're starting to get to that point of not quite getting back as much from it. But that did stimulate a bit of a conversation, which which is also flowing for us a little bit around the most appropriate times of a training cycle to do these sorts of things. So I suppose traditionally you might say, well, you do this leading into, you know, your key competition to try and get yourself to the, to the, a little bit like the way some people use altitude training. Um, 
but one of the concepts we have spoken about a little bit is potentially doing at the start of a training block to, to improve a person's physical capacity at, at the initial point and then coming back to it again at the end. Do you want to talk a little bit around that idea? Yeah, well, that, that's, I guess, probably the main way we've used it, um, especially almost trying it out for the first time with this group of athletes. You don't want to bring it in at the key time because if it doesn't work, then you can stuff everything up. But certainly the, the gains that you make from this type of training are probably more around your, if you want to call it, base fitness traits. Mm. So it doesn't necessarily make you have this unbelievable top-end power and all, and all that sort of thing that you need for 2K racing. But it really does improve your just your fitness, you know, to call it that. So um, to use it in that point of time, it can almost then prepare you for the next training block. It's almost training to allow you to train better. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, I mean, a really good way that it might work is that you do it early in the season, then you go away from it when you then want to target something else. So if you then want to target a little bit more sort of you know, higher intensity work to improve your max aerobic power or something like that, you've got the base fitness behind you to be able to tackle some of those sessions. Yeah. And it's a little bit of a different way of looking at it too, is using it at one end to just boost a, your um, physical condition and at the other end to almost work on the finishing off of the, of the training block. Mm. Um, which... Yeah, and I think it, it can be used successfully in both ways. It's just you've got to be clever about the way you do it. Yeah. I mean, the, the altitude training, you know, a lot of professional sporting teams, that, you know, AFL teams these days, they'll go off and use altitude um, as, a, as a stimulus to, before they start the season. Yeah. For, you know, for that exact reason, they can't necessarily do it in season while they're playing week to week. So they almost use that to fast track their fitness to kick the season off, so to speak. Now, it's good segue into altitude, I think, as well, because some of the traits that this works upon are quite similar to the... Um, you know, the traits that you'd see in uh, athletes and coaches and people that are seeking altitude training as a stimulus. So is it, is it an alternative to altitude training? How, and what's the relationship there? It's, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It, it, it's, it's not that well understood. There's, there's a lot of things, there are a lot of similarities in the two. Um, you know, we know certainly that when, it, when each of them work, we see improvements in VO2 max, we see improvements in threshold power. A lot of the things that you get out of each of them, when you're talking about not necessarily physiological mechanisms and so on, the traits that come out the other end can be quite similar. Yeah. Um, so I think you're basically you're going down different paths and there are different things happening that you, get to, you can get to a similar type of outcome. But then certainly there are, there are some differences there as well. Um, so I think it, it can be used as a, I mean, I like to think of it as a safer alternative, yeah. almost because I think altitude can knock people around quite a lot and it can knock you quite far back if it's not done right. Often you see people don't respond well at all. Um, there's a, a lot more that you need to take into account, I think, with altitude training. There's safety things as well. Yeah. That, that just the hypoxia stuff and, and those sort of things are are challenging logistically for exactly for training venues exactly yeah well exactly right so i mean unless you're lucky enough to be able to go on a camp <clears> somewhere where those things are more taken care of but then altitude sickness can be an issue and all but, sorts of different things but at a practical level it you know it seems to me like we're saying an hour a day for a week or two and then top up after that you can get some benefits from heat whereas altitude 
you know, the recommendations is 14 hours a day exposure over two or three weeks mm. generally, isn't it? So Yeah, well, it, it is a lot, a lot more. Mm. It, yeah, to get the gains that, that you ultimately want to get, it's a much bigger time yeah. <laughs> investment and, and challenge. So And it's a lot more expensive too. A lot more, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I've, certainly I've worked with athletes who have, you know, not necessarily you should recommend this, but if you, if you figure out a way to, to do it, um, safely is just you know having the heater on in in a spare room and get a, you know a bit of extra clothing on and, and cranking up the, the temperature that way. So um, it, it's certainly an easier way to go about it, and I think it, it can be an alternative. Um, and that's you know we we may have sort of used it in that way a little bit, but that, you know there's also evidence that you can potentially combine the two. Yeah, and there is a bit going on. I think there's a study in Enswiss at the moment yeah, that's, that's looking into that, and I know we've discussed doing it as well. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, well, there's a little bit of research going on around the world at the moment, and, yeah, we're lucky enough to have somebody within the system who's doing their PhD on it, which is great. Um, but it still is not a lot of good evidence on, on the combination of the two at the moment. I know there's a good study that used AFL footballers that used a yeah. combination of the two, and I think they found that Combining the two almost sort of extended the benefits. You didn't yep. necessarily get greater benefits, but I think it, it extended the you know the longevity of, of the benefits that you got. So, um, but still a lot to be done in that area, um, and not much published at, at the moment. But hopefully, some of that stuff will come out soon. Right. So, uh, I suppose then, at a very practical level, if you're going into the altitude tent for an hour. What is the environment like that you're looking at? In the altitude or for the Oh, sorry, the heat tent. The heat tent. Yeah. Um, so the heat tent, usually we've got it sort of at, uh, I mean, there's lots of different ways you can do it, I guess, but um, we generally do it at, you know, roughly 30 to 35 degrees um, and, you know, the humidity can change quite a bit depending on how well you can control it, but... Um, really, ultimately, it's it, it's more about the, the the total heat strain. So you could have two very different environments that lead to a very similar sort of heat strain. So yeah. um, you know, Rio, for example, might be twenty six to twenty eight degrees, but eighty percent humidity. Um, whereas you know another location might be thirty five degrees and forty percent humidity. Um, and so I think a lot of it is is getting the athletes comfortable if they are going to be going to an environment where that's where they'll compete, um, getting them comfortable with that specific environment. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, interestingly, there's not a lot of information comparing, you know, hot and humid versus, um, or, you know, not as hot and humid versus dry and very, and very hot, hot. And, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, we, we probably have it at, you know, 35 degrees and 50% humidity, you know, give or take. Yep. And... What's the difference between doing it in the tent versus training in hot weather? Interesting question there. There's actually quite a big difference, or there can be quite a big difference. So for anyone who's, you know, and it will depend on the sport that you're in, but for anyone who's ridden a bike or road outside on a hot day, you obviously get cooled quite a bit by the air flowing yeah. past your body. Um, you know, a sport like running, for example, if it's really hot, it's, it's horrible because you're Technically, you're moving quite slowly, mm. um, whereas if you're cycling, you're moving you know, quite a bit faster. So it depends on the time of the day, the season that you're in. Um, but interestingly, there was a study done, I think it was done up in Cairns, where they found that um, training, just training outside in the summer heat 
didn't fully heat acclimate athletes. Right. So the way we do it in the heat tent is generally it's very hot. You're on a stationary bike. Sometimes we might get the fan on um, just to make sure it's not too, too uncomfortable. But generally speaking, you will get a lot hotter mm-hmm. and you will sweat a lot more Because of course, inside the heat tent. with the fan on, it can inhibit your sweat rate because it, that you're getting more effect from evaporation, essentially. Or you could yeah. be getting more. Well, you could be getting more and, and also you're getting um, convective cooling as yeah. well. So you don't need to sweat as much, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so you're not going to get your four litres of uh, sweat per hour, <laughs> no. necessarily. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So, and, and a lot of athletes will sort of ask me that question, you know, oh, you know, it was a little bit cooler today in there, but the humidity was much, much higher, you know, does, does that mean it was ineffective? Or, and I just say to them, did you get hot? Did yeah. you sweat a lot? Yes, yes. Okay, that's really the main sort of game. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> so that's really, um, you know, the main the game. Main game. Yeah. So in terms of safety then, what are, the, what are the key things that we look to get to track and those sort of things to make sure they don't overdo it? Uh, well, the best, I've actually found the best way to, to prescribe the sessions is off our pair. Yeah. So, and almost every athlete that does it for the first time will go way too hard too early because as you start, you, you can just kind of sit on your normal yeah. what sort of... The first way seven way. minutes you feel a million bucks because yeah. you're also warm, yeah. you're not warming up. Yeah, exactly right. So you, you're warm but not and not warming up, but you're also not yet hot. Mm. So your core temperature, your skin temperature, and, and, and things like that are still not that hot. Yeah. So you feel great. Um, and then, so then you get the, you know, a bit of juice to go a little bit harder, or you just carry on at that um, intensity. And, and by about 30 minutes, you feel absolutely rubbish, and you don't know how you're gonna get through the rest of it. But, so really I say to athletes, at the beginning, it should feel easy, like too easy. It shouldn't feel this easy. Yeah. But eventually that will catch up to you and by the end it should feel you know, moderately hard, if not hard. Um, so really, the first thing is to make sure that, you, that you're not going too hard. Mm. Um, and probably even before that is to make sure that you're fit enough to start. Yeah, so yeah. you'd never you know, institute this in the very first week of the training block for the entire year. You, know, you want to have a good month or so of good solid training under your belt so you've got fitness so that you're going to be able to cope with that. Yeah. Because um, interestingly, it's a lot point. of the improvements that you see from heat training, you get from regular training. Yeah. Improvement in threshold, aerobic threshold, VO2 max, so on and so forth. So um, to go into it fit is going to be helpful to from a safety point of view as well. And they weigh themselves before and after and, yep. and weigh what they drink and exactly. try and replace 150%. Yeah, so what, what we do is, yeah, we get them to weigh pre and post and, and weigh how much they've drank. So that gives us an idea of exactly how much, well, not exactly, but approximately how much they've sweat. Um, we track that over time to see the adaptation as well. So we know that as you get better, you'll sweat more, and that's in indicating that you're actually adapting mm-hmm. as opposed to not adapting. Um, and then also, obviously, you know, giving them an idea of how much they'll need to drink afterwards uh, to make sure that you know, they're rehydrated and so on. So yep. And again, interestingly, there, there's some a bit of a, you know a couple of studies out there I think now showing that limiting the amount that you drink during those sessions can enhance the adaptation. So actually, becoming dehydrated is one of the key signals that then starts the cascade of events for adaptation. So um, just scoffing down water the entire time you're in there can actually potentially sort of negate some of the effects. Obviously, you're mm. still going to make gains, but to maximise the gains, we sort of say to them, have some water in there and, and you know, if, 
feeling sort of thirsty, have a, have a sip, but don't go overboard and then rehydrate properly afterwards. Yeah, and I think there's, there's two things to mention here. Number one is, and I think we have to emphasize this, that you would never have a go at doing things like heat, uh, heat or altitude training without the um, supervision of a qualified sports scientist and also clearance from your medical staff. So obviously the way we do it, we have medical staff that, that work through this and we have sports science uh, sports scientists that monitor what's happening the entire time. We never leave someone in there unmonitored um, because it is a bit of an extreme environment. Just like in any extreme environment, you take a lot of precautions to ensure safety. So we'd recommend highly that you seek your own individual advice in, in terms of taking this on. But that said, it comes back a little bit to the overall general principle of training in my view is the training is designed to stress your body to the point where it goes, I need to get better. And if you are doing things in your training to make yourself feel better about what you're doing, you're potentially lessening the stimulus or as you say, the signal that the body's receiving that it needs to get better. So if you do a really hard session in the heat and immediately cool yourself off so you feel 100% better straight away afterwards, then logically I think your body's not going to think I need to adapt as readily as it is if it suffers significantly. And that's really the fine line of training, isn't it? To, to push the body to the point where it has no choice but to adapt, but not push it so far that it's going to collapse. Like that's the yeah. art. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, yeah, exactly as you said, it's, how do you maximize your gains from training, not just from one session, but then from session to session to session? So, um, you know, something we've spoken about a lot in terms of T2 and T3 training is, you know, you can do all your session, your 90 minutes at T3, and you'll feel fine on the day, but then how is that gonna to affect tomorrow's mm. session and the next day session and so on? So it's that fine line of stressing it, really challenging the body to adapt, but then allowing it to be able to do it again and again and again. Yeah. So in terms of um, in terms of uh, a, a take home message for I guess the whole thing, the adaptation is physiological. It's also got some adaptation in terms of efficiency. From a practical point of view, you're looking at pretty hot and humid um, in the in the tent. You're looking at a week or two of doing it regularly every day or almost every day um, for about an hour need to weigh yourself before and after you work on an intensity of RPE that's very light to start off with um, and you certainly make sure that your first couple of sessions you build into it very much and you err on the side of light because it will get a lot harder a lot quicker than doing the same kind of training outside of the heat uh, potentially you can then keep the stimulus going by touching base a couple of times a week for a block of time um, and we'd sort of recommend considering doing it um, towards the front end of a training block as well as the back end because you might get the initial gains to improve your fitness to be able to then train at a higher level through the main training block as well as the gains you might get leading into the actual performance at the end. Is that a fair summary? I think you've summed that up beautifully. There you go. Well, that's my job. <laughs> Very good, Rodney. Well, we've probably we said we'll try and talk about a training, a typical training session um, each each uh, of these podcasts. We've probably been through it, but just quickly, I'm walking into the heat tent tonight. Tell me exactly what it's going to look like for me. Well, for you, 
For you specifically? For me specifically. <laughs> I don't think you should get in there. 180 kilos. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah, again, I think the best way to, to go when you're starting out in this sort of thing is probably you know, 45 minutes, um, really low intensity, um, and you know the heat will probably be around about 35 degrees and sort of 40 to 50% humidity, and it's just nice and easy, um, and it'll, it'll feel harder as, as you get hotter and hotter, and, and as you sweat more and more. But really, you know, the intensity level in terms of output, you know, if it's if it's by power, for example, should stay relatively the same. Um, although you should expect your heart rate to increase pretty much from start to finish, and um, yeah, the, the perception of effort will be the same as well. And it'll increase from start to finish. So that's what you've got yourself signed up for. Can't wait. And of course, I wouldn't undertake it unless I had good medical insurance and was completely supervised. <laughs> 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 Very good, well, thanks Rocket, and we'll uh, catch up with you next time. Cheers, BT, good one. Good job.